All right. Well, let's go ahead and get started tonight. Uh, thank you for being here. Uh, we're going to be in the book of James, continuing on with chapter one. Um, we're going to pick up uh, right there uh, at verse eight, um, talk a little bit about uh, the word ways, uh, specifically in what uh, we were talking about last week, about the double mindedness um, and the danger that lies therein. Uh, it's an important principle to understand because as we begin to move further through the book and further through the chapter, we find that James just doesn't start this like, uh, you know, just throwing things out there as, uh, you know, just uh, various different subjects. He, he, he has a purpose behind it. And while he talks a lot about uh, patience throughout the book, talks about, uh, you know, temptations and things of that nature, uh, one thing that we do see is that he is very much communicating the the one of the, the the main problems that people have when it comes to faith, people have when it comes to unbelief, and why people struggle so much uh, in the Christian life. And a lot of it has to do with their heart trying to be fixed on two different things, and you can't do that. As Elijah pointed out to the nation of Israel. He, when uh, there was the big showdown on the mountain, he told him, he said, you got to choose. You got to choose between God or you got to choose between Baal. And in this life, that's what you got to choose. You got to choose God or anything else. And there are so many different, if you will, Baals or false gods that you can insert in there uh, that uh, it, it, it's, it, it's just innumerable. You can put anything in there. But we have a choice. We're either going to choose things of God or we're going to choose things of the world. And this is where James is really pointing out some pretty important principles. Now, obviously, when we take a look at the book and we understand that he's talking to some some Jewish people, and specifically, this is kind of written, if you will, for some tribulation saints during that time, uh, they're going to be going through a lot of different stuff. And they're going to have to make some pretty difficult choices. You know, here in the United States of America, we, we've, we've got, uh, um, this, this mentality of, of, you know, these riches, almost kind of, if you will, a Laodicean mentality. But, but I will tell you this, uh, there would be a lot, a lot of sorrow and heartache and grief if the United States uh, as a nation collapsed and people were living in a third world uh, environment. There would be a lot of people that would not know what to do. They would not know how to survive. They would not know uh, a lot of things. And when you begin to look at the tribulation period, you see there is a lot of stuff that is going to be happening to the Jewish people, specifically the remnant as they're getting hunted down. And they've got some big, difficult choices that they're going to have to make. And what he's getting at here is in the Christian life, if you're going to say, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ, you're going to have to forsake everything else. Everything else is going to come secondary. Christ is primary. And we were kind of learning that with Philippians over there where he is the preeminent one. But here we're, we're talking about James. He's talking to these tribes that are already scattered abroad. And he's trying to get them to understand Look, it's not all about the physical stuff here, guys. The Jews have immense physical blessings that are promised to them, but it's not all about that. 
If you remember, Jesus Christ said, seek ye first the kingdom of God. He didn't say seek ye first the kingdom of heaven, a physical, literal kingdom. He said, I want you to seek first the kingdom of God, spiritual things. He said, then all these things will be added unto you. And he's speaking that to a nation, to a a Jewish nation that was seeking a, a physical kingdom. They were seeking a physical king to rule and reign. They were seeking those things. So I digress, but let's go ahead and open with a word of prayer. We'll get started this, uh, this, uh, uh, evening. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for what you've given to us in your word. Thank you again for the book of James and how it teaches us and encourages us and edifies us. It prompts us to grow in uh, every area of our life, Lord, as we continue to check, continually check, uh, our hearts and check where our affections lie and, uh, what it is that we desire. What are our uh, thoughts about and what our heart is set upon? And I pray, Lord, that we would just uh, be reflective of that tonight, that as we study your word, Lord, you would uh, just have your Holy Spirit work in us. We'd understand these doctrinal and applicational principles. And, Lord, we would use them to honor, glorify, praise uh, you with everything that we say, do, and think. Thank you again for those that are here, and I pray, Lord, this time would be honoring and pleasing to you. And this I ask in your Son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. So in verse 8, which is kind of where we left off, um, it says, The double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. We talked a little bit about this, and I kind of briefly mentioned this, uh, talking about a way. And I would say, would somebody would say, well, where, what direction is Seattle? And I would say, it's that way. And then they were like, oh, well, how am I going to get there? And I would give them a specific path, I-5. And then they needed to get to a certain area of Seattle. I'd give them more specific direction about exactly where to turn, what exit to get off of, and when, you know, how they're going to get to their destination. And the scripture is the same way. It will give a good general principle of ways of what God's ways are, which is holiness and then and righteousness. And then he will get very specific about, okay, this is the path that I want you to walk. I want you to follow Jesus Christ. I want you to follow that pattern. And then he'll give specific directions about what to do when certain things happen in our life, when certain things, we're confronted with certain temptations or problems, and we find all of that. So it starts broad and then gets narrow, uh, in its focus. But here this verse is meant to start broad, very broad, as he says here, uh, being unstable in all his ways, meaning that somebody that is double-minded isn't going to be able to find something on a map. They're not going to be able to figure that out. Uh, it, 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 it pains me sometimes when you watch some of those little clips about uh, uh, geography and people are like, uh, point out, you know, the continents. Uh, point out uh, where, uh, you know, where this country is. Uh, point out uh, all of these other things. And people can't tell the difference between Mexico and Canada being a United State or, um, you know, uh, they, they, they've got no concept of those things. They couldn't tell north from south, east from west. They, they, they don't have that. And we, we probably all know somebody that has... That is, as a, as I would say, is directionally impaired, meaning that 
you can try to give them directions, but they couldn't find their way out of a paper bag if both ends were open. I mean, you know, it's it's just that sad that you 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 try to describe, okay, this is how you need to get there, and 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 they just can't even seem to do it, even with GPS. And the GPS, you really can't even trust. But I mean, still, even with with modern aids that we have today, I remember back in the day. Anybody remember the old Thomas guides? I drove around with two of those. I had one for Portland, and I had one for Seattle area. And you'd look up an address, you'd find the address, you'd go to the back, it'd say this page, you turn to that page. You had to know how to use that thing. Today you throw that down, it's, again, it's like throwing a rotary phone in front of a teenager and they just kind of go, what is that? That's an antique. What is that, from the 1920s? And you're like, oh, please, thank you. You know? <clears throat> but you, 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 you find people sometimes are challenged in that. And I will say that there's a lot of Christians that are challenged that way, but they're challenged because their mind is fixed on something else. You ever try to give directions to somebody that is not paying attention? <laughs> Next thing you know is they're going to wind up over in, you know, somewhere in Kathmandu and you're going to be like, where are you? And they're like, I'm on another continent. How did you get there? And, and, and they just, they can't seem to figure that out. The same thing with Christian life. If we're distracted by all the things that are out there, and dare I say, if we're distracted by the blessings and gifts that God gives us, we're going to be double-minded. And that's what a lot of these verses are about, because as we get down through here, we're going to find out some things that he's referring to with that double-minded. But I wanted to talk a little bit about the ways. Turn over to Proverbs chapter 3. And, and, and I want to point this out. Proverbs chapter 3, a, a very well-known verse. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5, it says, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not unto thine own understanding." Very difficult verse for everybody to do. It's a challenge because many times we think we know better. But it says, in all thy ways acknowledge him and he shall direct thy paths. There it becomes an issue and a problem. If he is not in all of our ways, we're not going to have the right directions on the right path. We're going to be on a completely different path. It's going to be like the, 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 the lady on the GPS screaming, do a U-turn, do a U-turn, do a U-turn, you know? At the next light, do a U-turn. Because we've got to get back to the right direction. But again, it comes down to, are we acknowledging God in every way possible? Every way possible. That means we acknowledge him in our thought life. We acknowledge him in our words that we say. We acknowledge him in the actions that we do. These are just simple witnessing uh, things that we can do. I'll, I'll tell you, you know, acknowledging him in, in word uh, is, can be a challenge sometimes when you're surrounded by unbelievers. I gave the example 
that, uh, you know, one time I was in a management meeting and we're all sitting there and we had had a lot of bad things that happened. There was a lot of stuff that was going on. And, uh, you know, it just seemed like every single meeting, it was just like, okay, this is what went wrong. Here's how we got to fix it. This is what went wrong. Here's how we got to fix it. And it just seemed more reactionary than anything. But finally, something, something good had happened. And, uh, a, you know, the, the right results, the results that we had been wanting to get occurred and happened. People were excited about it. You know, the, the person, you know, was giving their report, told and said, this, this is what happened here. Here's the result. And everybody's, you know, kind of, you could tell was breathing a sigh of relief, had a smile. And people were like, yeah, yeah, that's good. And, and I'm just sitting there and I just blurt out, oh, praise the Lord. Man, you'd think I had said a really na- naughty word. I got like, you know, five people go do, you know, getting whiplash doing like this. What? You know, it's, do we acknowledge him? Everything that we do. You know, I try to make sure I purpose that in my heart. Something good happens. I, I try to make sure the very first thing that I'm doing is saying, praise God, thank you, Lord. And I, I tell you, it's tough because you get caught up in the moment. You get caught up in the blessing. And sometimes we get more focused on that than who just gave it to us. And that becomes a problem. So as he says here, in all thy ways, acknowledge him. And this is what John, uh, excuse me, James is following up on, is he's saying the same thing. He's saying, look, you're going to be unstable in every direction you go. You're not going to have a, 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 a good walking pattern. You're not going to have the right kind of gait. You're not going to have the right kind of, uh, uh, you know, tread pattern as you're trying to go through this because you're double-minded. You're getting pulled another direction. God's calling one way and somebody's calling or something is pulling and pushing the other direction. You ever try to walk somewhere when somebody's holding you back? Or somebody is blocking your path? If you're a larger person, you know, uh, I used to be a little bit larger than I am now, but, uh, you know... People just generally didn't block my path because as I'm coming through, they don't want to get run over. So they move out of the way. But you get somebody big that stands in the way that's there and blocks the path that becomes impossible to get through. You're going to have some stability issues. You're going to fall. And that's what happens when we start looking at other things. So let's take a look at some of these examples that he begins to get, uh, give James uh, back in James chapter one. In James chapter one, after verse eight, he talks about a, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. He says, "Let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted, but the rich in that he is made low, because as the flower of the grass." Uh, he, uh, because as the flower of the grass, he shall pass away. For the sun is no sooner risen with a burning heat, but it withereth the grass, and the flower thereof uh, falleth, 
in the grace of the fashion of it perisheth, so also shall the rich man fade away in his ways. Now, some people will, will, you know, begin to argue this whole issue of, um, uh, and again, people go on extremes, but they'll argue this issue of wealth. There is the group that runs out there, the prosperity theory that says God wants to make you rich. Well, God does want you rich in his riches, his goodness, his grace, his righteousness in the things that, that he bestows spiritually. But people will say, oh, no, 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 no. God wants you to have the, 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 the 17 mansions and, uh, the 50 different cars and the boats and the yachts and, the, uh, the airplanes and, and, you know, all the vacation spots and you never have to work a day in your life and things like that. And there are people that make doctrines out of scripture based upon that. And that's heresy. It's heresy. And now, now look, being rich doesn't mean that you're a sinner. Because I've known some people that were poor that were worse sinners than the rich. And I've known rich people that were worse sinners than the poor. Because it's all circumstantial based upon that person and the decisions and the choices that they make. But what he's getting at here is this point, he's saying, look, you know, people will clamor over each other for position to look better than the other. I mean, that's the whole concept behind gossiping and tailbearing and, 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 and uh, doing those things is so that you can make somebody else look lower in the eyes of someone else and you look better. Yeah. That's a dangerous thing. That's a real dangerous thing. Oh, who, are, who, who, who am I to judge that I'm better than anyone else? Who am I to, to uplift myself and say, oh, hey, you know, I am so much better? No. And I will tell you this, God handles that. God takes care of that. Realize Joshua wasn't looking for a promotion when he did what he did, but God promoted him anyways. Moses wasn't looking for a million disgruntled people. He had sheep. I often wonder, and this is just, you know, my sick little humor in my own head, how many times he sat there and thought, you know, as he's tending sheep, man, these are the dumbest creatures that God created. And he's just like shaking his head, just like, oh, good grief. And then God gives him the Israelites. And he's like, I want to go back to sheep. I'm willing to go back to sheep. They're so much easier. (laughs) But, you know, he wasn't looking for that. God just said, you're faithful, I'm going to promote you. Same with the disciples. They were out there fishing, tax collecting, doing whatever they were doing when God called them. They weren't seeking elevation. They weren't like an Absalom. They weren't out there like the, 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 the kingdom of Israel. 
you go through after the kingdom splits, you got the kingdom of Judah, kingdom of Israel. Uh, th- there is not a very long lineage of kings in the kingdom of Israel because they're all getting assassinated. And they're, 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 they're being replaced by servants and ca- captains and, and, and anyone else that decides to rise to the position. How did Ahab's father get into position? You got Omri coming in and he decides to kill a guy. But that guy that he got, that he was going to kill that got into power, how did he get into power? By killing the last king. I mean, it was just, it's just, it reads like a soap opera. It's assassination after assassination after assassination after assassination. Coup after coup after coup. And, and you look at that and why was that? Because everybody was trying to promote themselves to that position of king. They were trying to elevate themselves. And what, what, what James is saying here, he's saying, look, when, when, we are exalted and we're in a low state. We're not doing the exaltation ourselves. We rejoice because God's doing it. If you look at that verse in verse 8, he says, let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted, not that he has exalted himself. Meaning some other situation has occurred, some other uh, uh, um, if you will, scenario has, has taken place that takes and puts that person into a higher position. Solomon talks about this over in the book of Ecclesiastes where he talks about, uh, the, the old man, old wise man that gave, uh, um, a defense strategy for a city, saved the city, but now nobody even remembers his name. Here he was, just somebody that was a nobody, uh, you know, exalted for just a brief moment. But then what happens into that position, they fade away. Moses didn't stay leader of the Israelites forever. Neither did Joshua. Neither did David. You take a look at the, how long some of those kings reigned. They didn't reign long. And then there was some that you look at and go, well, how did they reign that long? I mean, here we are, you know, facing 2024. What's 2024? It's an election year. We get to try to elect a new leader. Again, when 2016 rolled around, the best bumper sticker I saw was 20, uh, it said something like, um, fiery comet hits the earth, 2016. Something like that. Like that was the vote. Just get it over with is what it said. And I'm sitting there going, you're not too far off on that. You know, go read the book of Revelation. You're going to find that there's a few things hitting the earth that, uh, that everybody's scared about. And they're scared about it right now. You know, you got something that passes within a million miles of the earth and people start biting their nails. Like a million miles of, okay. How about when it's just like dead on heading right for us? Can you imagine what they're going to do when they look up in the telescope and see that thing coming? Wipes out a third of the population of the earth. That's pretty intense. But he, 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 oh, what people will say, oh, well, that's already happened in the past. 
When? The dinosaurs? Come on. It hasn't happened. It hasn't happened yet. Those are things to come. And he warns here, and he says in verse 10, but the rich, in that he is made low. And the rich needs to, to, to acknowledge when they are humbled, that they are willingly humbling themselves, and it should be a rejoicing situation. Look, nobody likes to eat crow. Nobody likes to 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 be told that they were wrong. People don't like admitting that they're wrong, and this is why you know in counseling it's always important to emphasize the apology. For somebody to say as part of the repentance and the correction that needs to happen and the restoration of trust and everything is somebody needs to say, I apologize. I was wrong. Will you forgive me? Those are hard words for uh, to, to come out of a person's mouth. They're difficult. Why? Because you've got to humble yourself. But when you have an opportunity to say that, are you rejoicing in your spirit saying, Lord, thank you for humbling me? Now, why is that important? Because when you're humble, you'll learn. It's really hard to teach somebody that is pride-filled. It is really hard to teach somebody that is pride-filled. If you've ever had to do any employee training or anything of that nature, or you're trying to show somebody something and they they are the one that is the know-it-all they already know it and you're trying to show it to them and they're like oh no 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 i know yeah i know i know no no i know uh, no i know and you're watching them do it and you just sit back and you go i'm just gonna let them make the mistake boss walks up to you what are you doing i'm watching him make a mistake why aren't you stopping him because he knows and the boss goes oh (laughs) kind of like you and you're like, give them the dirty look. <laughs> Sometimes we are that way. But in order for somebody to learn, they've got to be of a low spiritual estate. They have to humble themselves. And I want us to think about this. God lowered himself for us. He made himself in this fleshly form to die on a cross for us. The purpose behind it. Great is the mystery of godliness. We we won't even lower ourselves on I-5 when there's a merge. Why would we, I mean, you know, but God said, I'm going to lower myself. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, to you know, take away everything that is who I am. I'm going to put myself in a human form and at the same time equally be God and man and I'm going to die for them. Man, that's a tough thing to do. But that's what Jesus Christ did. Willingly. Sometimes we have to be humbled unwillingly. But here he's talking about, if you will, Kind of receiving that. And a person that is double-minded is going to be unstable because they're not going to be able to receive the instruction, the rebuke, the correction. 
If they're a person that is so, you know, if you will, focused on their position, whether it is a person that is of low estate or somebody that is of a high estate or rich, they're, it doesn't matter. They're going to have an issue. They're going to have an issue. They're not going to be able to receive that t- type of instruction, direction in their life. And he says, but the, but the rich in that he is made low because as the, the flower of the grass, uh, he p- shall pass away. And he, he, he gets down to it. Now, Isaiah chapter 40, uh, says something very similar and it goes through it in a few more verses, uh, where he starts talking about Isaiah chapter 40 in verse six uh, through eight. Uh, I think it's through eight. Um, says, you know, a similar thing, talking about grass and flowers fading. Now, in the Stuart household, we have made a transition. We're slowly making a transition. Abby is the last kind of, if you will, stronghold of this. She's still holding on, thinking that the Stuart clan can somehow keep plants alive in the house. She's desperately trying to do it, and then she's trying to do it by proxy because she's over there and the plants are over here and expecting us to water and care for them. Now, I have been known to kill plants, including entire lawns. You know, that's just, I I just have a hard time with that stuff. I don't know what it is. So we've made a transition. We made a transition. A couple days ago, we had a, a roofer come over. We've got a little bit of an issue on one of our pieces of roof. About time for a new roof anyway, so we're looking into it, checking out the costs and, you know, suffering that heart attack. Um, and then, and then he, he's, he's, he's at the dining room table, and he looks at the plants. He keeps looking at the plants. And then he starts, and he looks at the plants, and he goes, wait a second. Are those plants made out of Lego? And I'm like, yes, yes, they are. And he goes, that is so cool. And I'm like, yeah, they never die. You don't have to water them. So we're slowly replacing our plants with plastic because it's better for the plant, I guess. You know, somebody else can care for it. But it it fades, it dies. I'll never forget the first time I had a tomato plant. Got the tomato plant, I was all excited. Actually, was keeping it alive. It produced some tomatoes. I was like, "Oh wow, you know, maybe maybe I got a hang of this thing." And then the thing started dying, and I was like, "Oh no!" And I'm desperately trying to keep the thing alive, desperately trying to keep it alive, and it keeps dying. I remember talking to Arlene Ball and 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 saying, "Ah man, I'm struggling with this this tomato plant." And she goes, "They die. That's why you need the seeds from the tomato to replant and grow another." And I'm sitting there going, what? I don't understand that concept. I'm struggling. I tell you, I don't know anything about plants. Do not ask me anything about plants. I don't know. I'll tell you how to kill it. But that's it. But that's what happens is it fades away. Inevitably, they all are going to die. We've got uh, over in, in downtown Ridgefield, we've got a very old sequoia tree. It's in somebody's yard, and it's got a big old plaque and stuff like that. It's kind of a tourist attraction. I'm glad I don't live there. I don't want people just walking up out of my yard looking at the tree and, you know, taking pictures by the tree and stuff like that. It's kind of weird. 
but you know, there's a big old tree that's over there and they grow and we've got the redwoods down in California and other things. And there's other trees, the Methuselah tree and things like that, that are all old and they're aged and things like that. But at some point in time, they're eventually going to pass away. They're eventually going to die. They're eventually going to get old. Think about this. What would happen if things didn't pass away? You realize that uh, reptiles never stop growing? Could you imagine what a reptile would look like if it lived to be 900 years old? Kind of look a little bit like a dinosaur, wouldn't you think? Big old critter. But eventually they all pass away. They have a lifespan. We have a lifespan. The Bible talks about our lifespan. doesn't give us a lot of years. You get 70 according to Scripture, and then after that, anything else is, uh, how does it phrase it, travail? <laughs> it, it's, it, it, you're, and you're sitting there going, wait, hold on a second. I've only got a few years left. No, just, you know, you let God handle that, okay? But what we find here is he's reminding, he's saying everything's going to fade away. That position, low estate, it's going to fade away. The rich person, it's going to fade, he's going to fade away. Riches fade away. Riches can be depleted. The market crashes. People lose billions and billions of dollars. And they're out delivering Domino's pizza. Happens. It occurs. And he warns them and he, 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 he parallels a lot of the stuff that Paul talks about. Turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. And uh, Paul warns Timothy. He's like, you know, you're going to have some people in the church uh, that are going to have some money, but you need to be careful with that. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, in verse 6, he said, But godliness with contentment is great gain. And there's the problem is because some people think that, um, uh, you know, if they have gain, that it is godliness. Just because they're rich, they're godly. Well, that's not the way it works. That's not the way it works. There are some people that are rich that are absolutely corrupt, and that's how they got their riches. So we have to be careful here. But he says here in verse 6, he says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. You ever wonder where that saying came from? It came from a scripture verse. When people said, well, you can't take it with you. Well, where'd that come from? Paul telling Timothy, you came in empty-handed, you're leaving empty-handed. And he says, and having food and raiment... Let us therewith be content. He says, let's just get down to what is necessary. You got the clothes on your back. You got some food in your belly. Be content with that. Everything else is just a blessing from God. Praise him for it and be thankful for it. 
He says, but they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare and in many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. What was, what was the error? The fact that they changed what affected their heart. They loved something else other than God. And this is where it becomes very, very, very critical. And he, he, he says, look, you know, there's some things that you need to, to, to stick with. But jump down to verse 17. He says, charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who giveth us richly all things to enjoy, that they do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate, laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. He says, you want them to grasp a hold of what is the important principle here. And what does he say there? Lay hold on eternal life. I tell you, your life will change when you begin to realize that you have an eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. When you lay hold on that promise and you put that in your heart and that is what you focus on, your desires and lusts will change. This earth is not eternal. Was never made to be. Our fleshly bodies, they're not eternal. We were made to eat vegetables. Back in the garden, that's all they ate, fruits and veggies and herbs. They weren't eating, you know, baby back ribs. They weren't eating the chicken. They weren't eating fish. They weren't even eating escargot. What were they eating? He said, you can have this for meat. Wheat from the field, bread, things of that nature. That's what he intended. But I'll tell you this, this earth was never made to last forever. And it just pains me to see people frantically and foolishly flailing about, trying their best to make sure this earth is going to stay for, for around forever. Look, I am, I am not an environmentalist by any stretch of the imagination, but, but I do believe we should treat this earth with the respect that God gave us dominion over it to take care of it. So does that mean that we burn everything down to the ground and we waste our resources and we systematically destroy the earth? Absolutely not. That in itself is a sin because what do we do? We're taking and we're telling God, I don't care about what you gave me. I'm going to use it any way I want. That's like the kid that you give a car to. You give him the keys to it. You give a 16-year-old boy, he just got his driver's permit, and you give him a Z28 Camaro. What's going to happen? That car is going to have some issues later on. 
He's revved it. He's done donuts. He's done burnouts, peel outs, everything that you can do with the tires, shredded them completely. That back end is probably so loose that it's about ready to fall off as he goes over the bumps on the bridge on 205. I mean, you know, the thing is just, it's probably trashed. Why? Because he didn't earn it. I remember the first car I bought. 1975 Volvo 244. Man, it was great because it had a really lovely smell in the inside. Never could figure out what was causing that smell. But, uh, you know, oh, it was great. You know, I'd drive around town and I thought, man, I got, I got a cool car. No. No. You know, it, it, it wasn't a gift. And sometimes people despise the gifts they're given. And if there is one thing that you, that, that, that a person can do to anger God and put you on the outs with him is despise what he gives you. Esau. Esau was born first. He had the birthright. He sold his birthright, therefore despising the birthright, despising the gift God gave him. That did not please God, and God said, I hate him for that. See how bad things can get when we despise what God gives us? And here he's saying, warn these rich guys, if they get something, don't have them focus on it. Have them ready to be praising God for it, understanding the blessings from him, willing to distribute, communicate, not sitting there hoarding them, you know, for themselves those things and stocking up. Man, you ever see some of the preppers? They've got enough toilet paper to last until the year, you know, uh, 2,500. And, 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 and they've got, you know, tons and tons and tons and tons and tons of ammo to protect it. Look, I understand being prepared about stuff. I get it. But there, there are people that take it too far. And there are rich people that take it too far. And I'll tell you, sometimes it happens. People get promoted at work. They get a raise. They get something like that. And then the next thing you know is that attendance becomes spotty in church. They change the way they behave. Now they're so desperate to keep that position that God gave them in the first place. And they think it's their, you know, that it's all about them to keep that. Look, if you just do a good job and do what you were doing before, you'll be fine. You do it as until you're pleasing the Lord. God will take care of whatever promotions it is. He'll handle that. But people get so fixed on those positions and on the riches of this life. And this is what James is warning. Because here's going to be a whole bunch of Jews that at one point in time had some stuff that now don't. And there's still going to be some that have some stuff. And he's warning him. He's saying, don't be so fixed upon that. 
Don't let that pull you away. Don't have a double mind about saying, hey, I want to serve God, but I want to make sure I keep my riches intact. Because those two are going to fade away like grass and like the flower. We have three rhododendrons in our uh, in the front of our yard, in front of our house. And uh, they bloom. What happens? They bloom. They, uh, we've got three different colors. It's kind of cool. Emma doesn't like the roadies because they kind of get in the way when you're mowing the lawn and stuff. But, um, but you know, those roadies are there and they bloom. And then what happens to the flowers? They fade away. The grass comes up. Summertime's get hot. Turns to a little stubble. The dogs don't like it. I mean, this is the nature of things. I mean, and, and again, Solomon covers that, and he says, well, "Let's think about this. Who, who's going to get the riches after you're gone? Somebody that didn't earn it and isn't going to care about it is going to use it. The prodigal. Give me my inheritance now. And what does he do? Wastes it. Wastes it." Go back over to the book of James as he's talking about this in James chapter 1. And uh, he talks about how, you know, it just is going to fade away in verse 11. He says, for the sun is no sooner risen with a burning heat, but it withereth the grass and the flower or there falleth and the grace of the fashion of it perisheth. So also saw the rich man fade away in his in his ways. This is similar to what you have over there in Mark chapter 4 uh, and the other parallel passages about the sower and the seed. What happens? Sun comes up and withers it because it doesn't have root. Why? Because it's not in the right type of environment to grow. And the same thing happens here to Christians. And there's a verse that that I want to point out, and I, I know I'm kind of shooting ahead here, but I want to point out, and if you will, is probably, and this is a verse that, you know, I've got a big old star next to it because this is the principal verse of the entire chapter. What, what, what James is getting at. And look at this here in verse 16. Do not err, my beloved brethren. One of the simplest verses that's in this entire passage, he says, do not err, my beloved brethren. And let's be very clear about when God says error, he's talking about sin. It's another word for sin. He said that over there. He said many of them have erred and, and made, mis- you know, made the mistake of going after riches over there in First Timothy. And he's saying, look, uh, he, he, James is trying to warn, saying, don't do that. Don't err into thinking that you can live a dual life, a life for Christ and a life for yourself. And that is the main thrust of what he's talking about here. Because a rich man will live for himself. The rich man fared sumptuously. He lived for himself. Lazarus laid at the gate begging. Now, again, this isn't a condemnation of everyone that's rich. Now, he, over in James chapter 5, you know, at the, at the end of it, 
He warns the rich. He says they're focused on the wrong thing, just like Laodicea. You go over to the book of Revelation, chapter 3, he warns the churches. He says, look, I, I, I know what you're doing. I know your works. I know, you know, you know all of these things. But I want you to invest, if you will, into real, true spiritual riches. We'll get to those passages in just, you know, in, in a bit. But that's where he wants the focus. The focus is on God, not on self. And what James is talking about, the error that occurs is when we try to live a life for ourselves and to live a life for God. Paul reminds the Corinthian church, he says, what, know ye not, you're not your own? You're bought with a price? So what happens? Well, if you're bought with a price, then you have to do whoever, do whatever the person that redeemed you says to do. Jesus Christ redeemed us. He redeemed us and set us at liberty. But there's still the expectation of following the will and the ways of God. There's still that expectation that's there. As we continue to go through this here, I want to point this out. Uh, as we go down a little bit further into verse 12 here, he says, blessed is the man that endureth temptation. And this is what he's talking about. He's saying, look, you're going to be tempted. You're going to be tempted. This is exactly what Paul said. He said, you're going to get tempted. God made a way to escape the temptation. There's always a way to escape the temptation. You do not have to succumb to it. That temptation's right in front of you. You don't have to do it. There is a bowl of jelly beans right in front of you. You don't have to eat them. Restraint must be used, right? Well, everything that we see in life, we don't have to follow that. There is always a way of escape. God has always given us a way of escape. And again, it goes back to Romans chapter 12. Choosing rather to be a sacrifice for the Lord than to just burn in the street, if you will, of your own lust. But this is what he talks about. He says, blesses the man that endureth temptation. Somebody that can have temptation come at them and endure it meaning that they don't succumb to it. He says that man is going to be the blessed man. That man's going to get a blessing. Now, does that mean he gets what he wants? No. That means he's living a blessed life, just like the man that we find over in Psalm chapter 1, the one that chooses not to walk, sit, and stand with those that are against God, but the one that chooses to meditate in his word day and night that's the guy that gets the blessing. That's the guy that lives the life that's got happiness and joy and peace and love and all of those things that the world clamors over to get in worldly ways and with worldly things. Things that just simply won't last. He says, blessed is that man, or is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised them 
to, uh, promise to them that love him. And here we're starting talking about crowns. And there's a bunch of crowns that are mentioned in Scripture. Believers get different crowns based on certain things that they go through. There is a crown for martyrs. Not everybody's going to get that crown. But here he's talking about one that actually understands, and if you will, has laid hold of that eternal life and begins to realize, hey, this life isn't about me. Why do you think it's called the crown of life? Because he really understands what life is all about. And it's not about riches. And it's not about self. And it's not about fulfilling our lusts and our desires and what we want. The guy that is capable of getting that concept and understanding it and resisting the temptation that's going to come, that is the guy that gets that crown. That's the one that gets that. And he says, very clearly, he says, this is a person that truly loves God. That was the problem with Israel, as they said they loved him, but their heart was far from him. And I dare say today, if there was a way of describing people, so-called Christians today, is they say they love God, but they really don't. You'll find a bunch of Christians that they say, oh, I love God, I love God, I love God. But then they have, you know, abhorrent things like some of these guys over here at the overpass that have flags that have curse words on it, cursing the current uh, president. Yeah, that's not Christian. That's the guy that's got the two waters coming out, the sweet and the bitter. I love God. If you love God, you wouldn't do that. I understand he may be a, may be a bad leader. I understand he may be a person that is, is unsaved. Uh, he definitely, definitely is unsaved. And he may be a person that is living for himself. He may not comprehend what's going on. I understand all the politics about it. But hasn't God warned us enough about how we're supposed to approach those that are over us? Rather than cursing them out, when's the last time they prayed for them? And not pray that God would remove him from office, but pray for his salvation and pray for his family. I know his son needs salvation and needs prayer a lot. Because he lives a horrible lifestyle. When's the last time people prayed? But here he is, he's saying, look, you know, here are these individuals that say they love God, but can they really truly say they love him if they can't endure the temptation? It's hard to say, I love God, and then turn around and then go after sin. It's hard to say, I love my Savior, and I am so glad he died on the cross and, and, and took the punishment for my sins and forgave me of all my sins, but yet I'm going to commit more sin. Over in Romans, God says, God forbids that. God forbid is what it says. 
God forbids you doing something, it's something we should ought to take notice of. And this is where James, is, he's getting to the hard facts of this. Somebody that's going to, that really truly wants to, to, to please God and say that they love him is going to be somebody that can endure the temptation, that when the temptation comes, no matter how hard it is, they are willing to say, no, I'm not going to do it. I am going to do this that pleases God instead. That's the mentality. Because here he says, and to clarify this in verse 13, he says, let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. And somebody's going to say, well, he tempted Abraham over there. I understand, but let's understand the use of the word tempt. There's tempt to sin, and then there's tempt in testing. Scripture, the words that are used in Scripture have very many, have dual meanings sometimes. Example, wine. Today, we we only know wine as alcoholic wine. In Scripture, it calls, there was, you know, new wine and old wine. He talks about wine in a good sense, and then he talks about wine in a bad sense. Why? Because some of it had some side effects that were not good. And some were just fruit of the vine. You realize that's where the word wine comes from? It comes from the word vine. Stuff that comes off the vine that is made into a juice that is consumed would be considered wine. Whether it's blackberries, strawberries, whatever. Things of that nature, grapes. Those are all would be considered wines. But not all of them are alcoholic. Not all of them are going to cause you to do the things that he talks about in the book of Proverbs. See and say strange things. Stagger like, you know, a, a man that's, you know, on a boat going back and forth. Yeah, he's, he, he, that, that's the stuff that he says avoid. That's the stuff he says, I don't want you even dealing with that or looking at that. I would just, but he makes it clear. You have to look at the context of the entire passage. And the passage of where he's talking about temptation here, he's talking about being tempted with evil, tempted to do something that is harmful. Harmful to self. Harmful to another person. Evil in that way. And he says, don't, don't, don't blame that on God. There's a whole doctrine out there uh, called Calvinism, Reformed Theology. And it basically makes God the author of sin. Because it says that uh, God ordains everything, including the sin that you commit in your life. Therefore, if God has ordained that you commit sin, you must obey and commit that sin. No, God would never do that. God doesn't do that. Those are things that uh, God, God doesn't operate that way. But what he has here is he's saying, look, don't blame God for the problems that you have in your flesh. Don't sit there and say, well, you know what? If God hadn't given me that fast car, I wouldn't have had that many speeding tickets. 
Well, if God hadn't given me that, 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 that great job that, that I have that, uh, uh, that takes me away from my family and takes me away from church and takes me away from reading my Bible. Well, if God hadn't done that, ooh. As he says here, let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. That's not God. God may have given you something good, but how we chose to use it is on us. That's all on us. And that's what he's getting at here. He says in verse 14, because here's where he gets to the temptation part. Here's where he gets to the temptation. We're going to leave off with this. He says in verse 14, but every man that is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. He says that's the issue. Temptation deals with what your heart is desiring, the lusts. The concupiscence, as we talked about on Sunday. What is it we're, we're, we're desiring to do that we want? What is it in this life? And he says, you can't live that dual life where you're going after the lusts of your own flesh saying you want to please God. You'll fall. You'll be unstable. Why? Because in verse 15, it says this, then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. There we go. That lust is in there. It's allowed to to do what it's supposed to or, or what it does. And the next thing you know is you're over there with with Paul saying, uh, sin revived and I died. And he says, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Sin has never produced any kind of life worth living, has never produced life at all. The only thing that it produces is death. That's all it produces. Death, 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 leading to eternal death. Burning in a lake of fire forever. That is a death that nobody wants to to go through. People will say they do, but they have no idea what they're talking about. They have no idea. Jesus Christ himself warned, there are going to be people that are going to make that decision. They're going to choose that. As a believer, we've got to be careful what we do. Because we are no longer dead in our trespasses and sins. We are quickened and alive in the Holy Spirit of God. I mean, we, we've got a life. We've got eternal life. How do we live that? Here's where James gets to the, if you will, the the rubber meeting the road on verse 16 where he says, do not err, my beloved brethren. Don't kid yourself in thinking you can live for the lusts of your own flesh and what you want and say, I'm going to live for God. We have to, if you will, mortify that thought get rid of it focus fully and wholly upon what god is doing in our life and what he wants us to do that was the problem with the nation of israel they focused more on what they wanted to do versus what god wanted them to do 
we should all learn that lesson. Next week, we'll pick up uh, right around there and we'll, uh, you know, again, uh, take note of a couple of things and making sure that we're, uh, take a look at a couple of, if you will, the way that uh, Israel erred. We'll take a look over in Deuteronomy, a couple of those verses. But uh, again, being very, very careful not to err into uh, corrupting the gifts that God gives to us. And that's where a lot of people will err in their Christian life. But let's go ahead and pray and we'll be dismissed. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for the time that we've had. Thank you again for an opportunity to study your word. Uh, Lord, uh, it's uh, always a little bit heavy when we have to take a step back and look at our own lives and begin to ask some serious questions about humility and about sin and about what our heart is affected by. But Lord, I pray that we would take these verses and we'd begin to use them and apply them in a way that we would please and honor you, that we would demonstrate how much we do love you. But Lord, I pray that we would not err in a way that we say we do, but continue after sin. I pray, Lord, you just take us home safely tonight and bring us back safe on uh, Friday for the men's Bible study here and the ladies at our house. And also again on Sunday, Lord, as we come to worship you and sing praises to you and hear from you. Pray, Lord, you just keep us safe throughout this week. Give us opportunities to be a witness and tell somebody about the need for a Savior and how you have come and died for us and given us forgiveness of sins through the power of your resurrection. Thank you again for this. And these things I ask and pray in your Son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen.